Hi, I'm Matt Williams. Welcome to Glimpses. My guest today is a remarkable human being. She is a television producer, screenwriter, essayist, and author. She was born in Rome, raised in New York, and graduated from Harvard with a degree in literature and history. And when I hear the phrase, sophisticated lady, I think of Susan Fales Hill. And she is simply one of the coolest people on the planet. So thank you for being on Glimpses. Wow, you've already <clears throat> rendered me speechless. <laughs> Buongiorno, Matteo. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, having known you now. I think it's it's frighteningly 38 years. It's been that long. It's been that long. But we were 12. And, and well, actually, we... I was 11. You were 12. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you thought I was a sophisticated lady. So now, see, you called me Matteo because I want to start with this. You speak four languages, correct? Si, signore. Yes. I do. Uh, French, Italian, Spanish. Yes, and English. One hopes. And some Haitian Creole, right? A teeny, teeny bit of uh, Haitian Creole. My parents, so my mother was Haitian. Uh-huh. Uh, my father was a wasp, but he uh, studied He studied languages and he studied Creole. And I think they purposely didn't teach my brother and me because they wanted a secret language. <laughs> so, okay. So they could talk <laughs> they about could you. They could speak not... to each other and, and say naughty things to each other or naughty things about us and not not have us understand. Well, see, that's why you're so smart. Because, see, I took two years of high school French, and at the end of two years, I could say, we and a la bibliothèque. (laughs) That's not bad. A la bibliothèque, that's a very important important word. (laughs) At the library. (laughs) Well, now, so you you said 38 years ago we met, and we met on... Uh, The Cosby Show, where I was a little apprentice. Right. And... Uh, you were the first person to really be kind to me because I had been thrust upon the writing team by our boss. Uh, and later I understood why people were not receptive because as writers, you want to be able to pick your comrades and you hadn't picked me. So, uh, But I remember coming into your office with what I thought was an attempt at a scene. <laughs> <laughs> and you proceeded to sit me down and tell me, very kindly, but very firmly, this was not a scene. <laughs> so a scene, a dramatic scene entails two people who want something from one another and uh, proceed to try to obtain it. I had just written two people blathering at each other, which <laughs> anyone could go and sit in their local bar and, and experience. They didn't need to turn on their TV set for that. So. But what I remember about you uh, was you were so eager to learn and so curious you were like a sponge and I remember watching you watch rehearsals down in the studio I would watch you and you would take notes and you were looking at the cameras and you were watching the performers and I went anyone that is that engaged and that curious will be successful my goodness I love that that videotape you've just rolled because I obviously you don't have much of a perception of yourself right. <laughs> in life. And I, I didn't even see myself that way. I didn't, I didn't realize I was doing that. I just, I just remember you like this. <laughs> you, you always had your notepad and always scribbling and watching. And that's why it was such a joy to, to, I, I, I think it's too pretentious to say teach you. It's just kind no, of... No, you did teach me and you were really uh, a big mentor to me, which I'm so grateful to be sitting with you today, 38 years later, and to be able to really say thank you. Incredible. Because you really took me under your wing. You really took the time. You explained in such beautiful terms and you set such an example of, of what a writer is, what a writer can be. And so it's, it's really a pleasure for me to, to be able to say to you, 
uh, without you, I don't think I would have made it. So uh, that's the paid announcement for this episode <laughs> of Glimpse. <laughs> Let's talk about the Cosby Show, because you were there. You started as an apprentice. Yes. You transitioned to a different world. Yes. And that was a show I developed with John Marcus, Carmen Finestra. We wrote the pilot and then went back to the Cosby Show. But you started as a story editor. Yes, I did. And you worked your way up to head writer. Yep. Yep. Okay. So you learned pretty quickly. And and as a head writer, for those who are listening, one, what does a head writer do in television? And two, what is the most important attribute that you can possess as a head writer? I think as a head writer, you need to uh, be a broodmare. Oh. The broodmare leads from behind. Uh-huh. She brings out the best in the whole team, and she's pushing from behind to get everybody to go in the same direction. So I think you have to have a vision of where the show can go, but you also have to have the humility to understand you don't have the answer to all the questions and to really help everyone around you come up with those answers. That, that is a, a, a pretty brilliant description. That, that really is. Because you don't have all the answers, but you pull the best out of the herd. You get, yes, encourage. No, encourage and, uh, and, and be open and, and give people the freedom to be their best selves and to bring their ideas. And I always begin by saying to the team, there's no such thing as a dumb idea because a bad idea can lead to a very good one. A bad joke can lead to a very good one. Right. So uh, it's just about getting people to bring their full selves into the room and to all feel responsible for getting us where we need to go, which is through whatever it is. Now it's only 10 episodes a season, but then it was 22. That was a long haul. 22 or <laughs> Home Improvement, it was 25 episodes Oh my goodness, And it's yes. interesting you say that because uh, at the end of the week, uh, when you're, you're exhausted and you're, you're getting ready to film before a live audience, I would always have what I called stupid hour. With, <laughs> where you get all the writers around the table yep. and go, no one's going to harass you or make fun of you. I want to hear your most dumb idea. What's the dumbest idea? And inevitably, somebody pitches something. You go, wait a minute. What if we do? And it triggers something. Exactly. So, it's yeah. all about the building on something that can be unformed clay yeah. uh, and not judging it which is harder to do when you're just working on your own. You judge every single sentence you write. But right. <laughs> in a group, you have to set that example of, come on, let's just throw it up against a wall. I like that idea of stupid hour, though. I may be stealing that. Well, I, I think, I, think I, <laughs> I have a lot of stupid hours throughout my day. <laughs> so. I think my life is stupid hour. But <laughs> Now, you besides TV, and you did uh, other shows like Suddenly Susan, Lynx, Currently, yes. you are on the Sex and the City reboot and Just Like That, and you are a consulting producer on just, and Just Like That. Tell the listeners, what does a consulting producer do so, besides consult? <laughs> <laughs> it depends. The beauty of a consulting producer role is that you can really define it yourself. Uh, usually it's someone who has had experience running a show. You don't get to be a consultant without having reached that level. Right. They very graciously offered me um, an EP ship, executive producer ship, and I said no because I'm not, I, I will not be there every single day. Um, however, I did choose to be there every day during our writing process because uh, you're there to help them shape the season because you lay out the season over the course of whatever, the 20 weeks that you have in a writer's room. And you, I realized you need to be there every day because there's nothing worse than that person 
who parachutes in two days a week <laughs> and unravels what everyone has right. done or starts to punch holes into the stories that people have come up with. And the way a season is done, as you well know, is you, you take you look at your characters and you say, where is he or she or where are they at the beginning of the eight episode or 10 episode run? And where are they at the end? What, right. what are the steps of this evolution? It's an arc in the, in the same way a novel or a play draws an arc. So I really wanted to be in there with doing the building blocks. And one of the reasons that uh, Michael Patrick King very graciously invited me to be part of this is that they really expanded the canvas of um, Sex and the City. It's it's much more multicultural than it was. I was so excited because I feel like I've never been able to play all the keys on my piano, as it were. Right. I have written black shows, I've written white shows, and never the twain have met. And that is not the experience of my life. My life is extremely integrated, starting with mom and dad. Right. <laughs> uh, and and to me, the New York that I've always known was a very integrated place. Uh, and so I really have always wanted to, to see that on screen and, and to be part of creating that kind of mosaic of women who are of many different ethnicities and different backgrounds and yet find all these commonalities has just been a real joy. That's great. That's great. And it's interesting that uh, as a head writer, you come in now with all that experience. You know where the sand traps are. You know where the stories are going to get derailed. And you can help the staff shorthand and, exactly. and step around those mistakes. Exactly. Without <laughs> having the burden of wearing the crown. I have to say, that's fun. I'm, yeah. I'm, it's like those little motorcycles in the Aristocats where you have the sidecar. <laughs> I'm in the sidecar. I get to say, oh, look, we're going to bump into something here. But I'm not driving. So it's, uh, it's a nice, it's a nice, nice experience not to feel that burden of, of total responsibility for everything that goes wrong. So you're writing, you're writing uh, television for thousands and millions of people to watch. You've also written three books. Yes. Uh, a memoir. Yes. Always Wear Joy, mm -hmm. which may be one of the greatest titles ever. <laughs> it's, the full title is Always Wear Joy, My Mother Bold and Beautiful. And that, that got an a lot of notice. Yes. It, 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 you were nominated for awards and it, it, it got a lot of traction. T tell us a little bit about Always Wear Joy so, and what is joy okay. for those who don't know. <laughs> so joy is not only an emotion but a perfume and I have to say, I have to give credit where it's due. Uh, one of my beautiful producers, most talented uh, writer-producers on A Different World, Glenn Berenbaum, is the one who came up with that title. It's because, a great title. Uh, I, I was coming up with awful titles like... Uh, I don't want to sing the blues or, I mean, it just, they were awful. One was worse than the next. Um, my mommy was, <laughs> I love my mom. <laughs> but uh, my mother wore Joy Perfume, which was a, a famous perfume by Jean Patou. And she also always embraced the best in life and always, no matter how difficult her circumstances, sought the, the silver lining. Right. Uh, and it was interesting because after I had written the book, I was at Sardi's where there's a caricature of her, as there are many Broadway because performers. Because she was a she Broadway, was a Broadway performer. performer. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had never actually looked at what her, how she had signed it. And she signed, always have a happy face. Incredible. So it was very interesting. Uh, but the book came out of an article that I wrote for Vogue magazine in two, the year 2000 uh, called uh, My Life in Black and White. 
uh, and it was about growing up biracial and not being a basket case because I was a little sick and tired of the sort of narrative of the tragic mulatto. Right. Um, and uh, I made a joke in the article about <clears throat> writing my autobiography, and I called it Up From Lomans in a play on Up From Slavery. And I started getting calls from editors I knew saying, when, when is your memoir coming out? I can't read. <laughs> I thought, do, wow. do they really think I wrote wow. Up From Lomans? <laughs> and then I looked in my closet and thought, actually, that would be an apt title. So <laughs> anyway, uh, our dear friend, Adriana Trigiani, yep. the great novelist and raconteur and um, personality on, on Facebook Live, uh, introduced me to her book agent and uh, the book agent said to me, you have a story that's so unique because you grew up in this interracial family. And my parents got married in 1958, the same year as the Lovings, uh, who were the subject, obviously, of the Supreme Court case, yes. Loving versus Virginia, uh, which struck down the anti-miscegenation laws, which were on the books till I was seven years old, until 1969. Yeah. And so um, my parents, uh, fortunately, were in New York, but there was so much um, vitriol against them, and they received a lot of hate mail. My mother was a well-known performer. My father was from a very old WASP family, prominent. Uh, some came on the Mayflower, the others on the second boat. So <laughs> uh, they ended up having to flee the country, which was why I was born in Rome. They were refugees from racism, Incredible. if you will. So between that... Also, my mother being this Auntie Mame character who at the same time was an amazingly hands-on and completely loving uh, mother. Uh, she, uh, Suzanne Gluck, my agent, felt you've got a story that is so unique. Uh, so, And I, my mother was uh, dying at the time. Uh, she was terminally ill with uh, emphysema because she'd been a smoker. And I went to her and I said, Mommy, people want me to write the story of, of your life and our story. And uh, she had been approached many times about writing memoirs because she was one of those people who, you know, you'd say, oh, Queen Elizabeth. Oh, yes, I met her once. She met everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> And she said to me, um, I want you to write our story. And so that became a sort of a sacred charge. Uh, and so <clears throat> I started writing the book while she was still with us. And then she passed away in the middle of the process. And I, I'm actually so grateful that then I had to go back and, and continue to write this book because it was the best way to grieve her and the best way to process this enormous loss and this amazing And it's a, it's a being. wonderful book. It's a wonderful read. And you, you've also written two novels, One Flight Up, Imperfect Bliss, both in the vein of romantic comedy. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I want to ask you this. When you're writing in a room on mm -hmm. TV yep. and you're writing for people sitting at home, thousands and millions yep. of and then you're writing a book. There's a, I guess, a, a concept that everyone writes for one reader. Do you write for one reader, or do you, <coughs> excuse me, do you, uh, do you, do you just tell the story you want to tell and not worry about the reader? Well, so I'm neurotic, so I worry about everybody. <laughs> <laughs> And I always spoken say, like a true writer. <laughs> That's a true writer's mind. It's a writer's mind, and then there's a whole other layer of uh, pressure and guilt uh, because I was very much raised in uh, the philosophy that when and where I enter, the whole race enters with me. Uh -huh. And in my case, that's a lot of people because yeah. I'm <laughs> representing. Uh, African-Americans, I'm representing Haitian-Americans, I'm representing 
products of the mixed marriage. I'm representing both my families. So I always feel this enormous burden. Um, and my parents were very flawed people, but they were extraordinary. And I guess if I have an audience, it's really them. Okay. And it's the incredible women I grew up around. Um, my mother's best friend was Diane Carroll. And I want to talk about these women. Yeah, we're going to worry. No, I want to, please do. Because you grew up in your household. Not only was it Josephine, your mother, you had Eartha Kitt, Lena Horne, yes. Diane Carroll. You yes. had these powerhouse women in your life, in your home. What, what was the influence? I mean, what did it, they teach you? Well, first of all, the notion that a woman is inferior to a man just never crossed my mind. Right. The notion that a woman had to ask a man's permission for anything never crossed my mind. Uh, the notion that black women were not as beautiful as a blonde, blue-eyed white woman, with all due respect for, to the right. Ursula Andresses of the world. Yes, she's lovely, but it's sort of, these women are goddesses. Yeah. It also was very helpful because I'm 60 years old, so when I was growing up, Black women were not on the covers of magazines. We were not on a lot of advertisement. We were not the ideal by any stretch. Right. And yet I knew the world was crazy because these women redefined reality for me. I mean, first of all, you couldn't help but look at Lena Horne, the most beautiful woman who ever walked. Right. Diane Carroll with no makeup on. She, she lived <clears throat> when she lived uh, in New York on the Upper West Side blocks from us. And she'd throw on, you know, some old outfit. <laughs> and she'd say, Josephine, I've had this in my closet since 1975. I just put it on. I don't care. But they were, they were, it, they taught me that femininity was strength. And now my daughter would say, what's femininity? <laughs> Younger people are going to say, well, how are you defining femininity? Yeah. They were so in possession of their sensuality, their sexuality, uh, and sexuality and intelligence and glamour and intelligence all went together. It was all, they, they embraced what some would call the divine feminine. Um, and so it was just so empowering. I'm so profoundly grateful. And when I would meet people later in life in college and so forth who would say, oh, I always grew up feeling inferior to you know, lighter skinned women or blonde women, I'd say, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Who made that the ideal? That's crazy. Uh, but also on a more serious level, just the notion that you belong in every room that you walk into. I had a really interesting experience on the last show that I ran, 20s, which is fabulous, uh, by Lena Waithe. Um, I was her... Uh, her um, uh, doula it was her baby and I was the doula okay uh, but I ran the show and uh I took all the young writers who were all of color to the Beverly Wilshire for drinks and the next day one of them said to me it was so cool being black women in a white space and I said excuse me there's no such thing as a white space and there's no such thing as a black space there's a space you can afford and there's a space you can't yeah and I thought my god I mean this person is 30 years younger than I am right and it consciously thinking about do I belong here every time they walk in someplace and I never had that and that that's privilege yeah uh, especially being born in 1962 um, and then I had another huge epiphany when I saw the movie uh, The Post which was about the Washington Post when uh, during the Watergate era right and when uh, uh, Mrs. Graham 
took over the newspaper and she was cowering and she was scared and she she had been taught by all the men in her life that she was inferior and that she wasn't capable and it's about her coming into her own. And I sat there watching this thinking, oh my God, I never experienced that through the women I knew. There was never a question of, are you capable? Right. Because they were breaking every boundary and they didn't ask permission and they didn't wait for permission. They just did. So uh, that, again, is a gift because I thought of white counterparts of mine who maybe grew up with a mother who stayed at home and right. was brilliant but was not, did not have the chance to fulfill all her gifts. Well, so. you're, you're talking about the divine feminine. This is a true story. Uh, 40 something years in show business, met a lot of celebrities. The only time I was truly in awe of a celebrity was when Lena Horne did a guest spot on the Cosby show. And I, this is the truth. When she walked into the studio, the molecules in the room changed. And I went, oh my God, this is what angel energy feels like. Exactly. And she exactly. just possessed that. She just did. Yeah. She just did. And all the women I grew up around had that, in all expressed in different ways, but right. they had that incredible charisma. And they could talk to anybody. Yeah. Um, and then there was no end to their activism. Uh, they were always, and they didn't brag about it. They just did it. I, they just did it. Yeah. And I've learned subsequently things that all of them did, things my mother did. I was contacted last year by a fellow who's a historian of Long Island. And uh, when my mother was 19 years old, there was a man named Charles Ferguson, this is 1948, and uh, he was a World War II veteran, and he was in a bar, and someone called him a slur, and he had words with the bartender and then left. And at any rate, he and his brothers were followed, and uh, they ended up being killed, basically, by the police. And th that part of Long Island was a hub of the Ku Klux Klan at the time. So it was a, a very early, just brutal police shooting up a man who had won, I think he had the Purple Heart, uh, and he was going to be sent, he was going to be deployed to Japan to detonate um, uh, bombs and, and uh, landmines. Anyway, obviously, with the loss of him, his widow, everybody's life was derailed. His family fell into poverty and what have you. But my mother was a group, part of a group of three people raising money for his family to bring this cause to light when I think of what I was doing in 19, <laughs> it was nothing. And, and here was a, a young woman without, you know, a huge personal fortune or anything. And again, just going out and doing it and never, with no fanfare. I mean, she didn't sit around telling me, and then I, and then I. It no, she not. just did it. She now, you've got a 20-year-old daughter, yes, Crystal, yes. uh, at Harvard. Yes. What do you hope to pass on to her? All these wonderful things you learned and observed and these examples in your life i'm sure you were an example for her but it's it's a different era yes so one of the tragedies i always worried uh when i had her first of all my mother was already gone right uh, thank god aunt diane diane carroll was still around um and i thought there's no way I can replicate the kind of sentinel that I grew up in. There, there's no one, 
I mean, God bless everyone, and there are a lot of talented people out there, but th these giants, yeah. you know, um, uh, the recently deceased Harry Belafonte was a dear friend. And anyway, uh, so, and we're a lot saner. I mean, my parents drank a lot and there was, and, but it also made them a little more interest, interesting. We're so clinical and <laughs> <laughs> well-behaved and going to bed at nine, it's a little dull and a little bourgeois and proper. Uh, but uh, I did realize at one point uh, when she was about six and sitting around with a friend of mine who runs the Studio Museum of Harlem and uh, Misty Copeland, who is uh, the first black uh, prima ballerina with American Ballet Theater, whom I helped mentor early in her career, I realized, okay, it's not the same, but there are equally phenomenal people. That said, I'm a big believer in passing on all of the spirit of these these ancestors and these right. extraordinary women. So I, I, there isn't a day that passes where I'm not telling her a story or, and it can come through an item of clothing or passing a place or always infusing her with the stories of the strength of these women. And I used to play my mother's music in the house when she was little uh, because I want her to have that extraordinary sense of you are a woman and that is a beautiful strength to embrace right. and you can be anything. That said, what I'm not passing on is the when and where you enter and you must be flawless because that has also been a handicap um, and a source of a lot of uh, psychiatric bills. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. hey, listen, you, you know, so. what, what is the Hemingway quote? <laughs> you know, what's the best early training to be a writer? An unhappy childhood. Exactly. Well, you had, you've had both. You I had a happy childhood. You had an unhappy childhood. And, it was everything. And we're all neurotic and we're all perfectionists. Exactly. And I think there's a certain degree of that that must exist in a head writer on a TV show because you're worried about everything all the time. And you need to be. And you need to be. And you're always thinking. And yeah. I, I remember when I was running multiple shows, I lived my life in 15-minute increments. Every 15 minutes, I'd look and go, okay, editing bay. I got to be there. We got a casting yeah. session. Uh, we haven't beaten out that episode. We're, it, you know, it's, Exactly. It never stops. It never stops. It never stops. And I'm <clears throat> proud to say, so there's a big fashion show at Harvard, which is the largest uh, college fashion show in the country. And uh, this coming year, my daughter will be the executive producer of it. And so she said to me, Mommy, I'm going to be an executive producer like you. So uh, that made me feel good because good. by and large, she doesn't really want to be like me, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is also good. <laughs> so you've wrapped and just like that, and you are working on a new book. And I'm not going to dig too deeply because I, when I'm writing, I don't, sometimes I, it helps to talk about it. And other times I don't want to talk about it. Then I, I lose kind of the need to write. But if you're willing, what are you working on? So I'm happy you've asked about it because <clears throat> it's a book whose subject has driven me to the psychiatrist and to the bottle. So, <laughs> uh, And here today. <laughs> drunk at, at uh, 11. <laughs> um, I made the unhappy discovery. It's now seven years ago. Right. Uh, I had always been very proud of my family, both my family histories, and my mother would always say to me, you have ancestors on both sides of your family, both the Haitian and the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant that fought in the Revolutionary War. Um, and so I've always carried both my heritages with pride, and I, I was very close to my father's family. And 
seven years ago, I made the discovery that uh, they were not just uh, New England shipping family. They were slave traders. Your family. My family. The family. On your family, father's side. On my father's side. Uh, because wow. Everyone thinks that the epicenter of the American slave trade was in Charleston, South Carolina. Right. Wrong. Okay. <laughs> it's in Bristol, Rhode Island, and we named our daughter Bristol, Bristol. Uh, to honor the family heritage, not realizing what what was what dark deeds were happening in the port of Bristol. Bristol. Okay. So uh, this set me on a path, of course, of. Uh, historical research. And I, I knew instantly I needed to write about this uh, because, and I've always, the, the joke was on me because I've always said uh, one of the reasons as a country we, we aren't healed and we still have such divisions among the so-called races is that we've never faced our history. And right. the fact that the founding fathers were founding fathers, you know, it took so long for people to accept that Jefferson had fathered these non-white children and, and that this was common and that we're all, frankly, all related. And if your family, your quote-unquote white family has been here over 200 years, chances are you have black ancestry. And if you're black, obviously you have white ancestry. And so I'd always been, you know, shaking my finger at everyone saying, you have to face your past. And then my past came back Pops to bite up. me in the most hideous and shame-inducing way. Uh, and I mean, it was really, you know, I am, you know, the play, I am my own wife. It's sort of, I am my own oppressor. <laughs> this wow. is just mind blowing, uh, and made me kind of reconsider everything I thought I knew about who I was and who our family was and, and what the North was and what the South was. Um, so for, uh, two years now, I've been on a real historical deep dive about it and, Things I'm discovering are, for example, that uh, one of one of my ancestors' ships was the subject of the first presidential pardon in the in the new nation. Uh, Jefferson pardoned what they call the supercargo, who's the person in charge of unloading the the slaves, as it were. Uh, and that presidential pardon occurred in I think 1808. So first presidential pardon in the country was about of somebody working on a slave ship. So you take all of this research, yeah. And you do this deep dive, and you're going to turn it into a story. Yes. Do you envision it as historical fiction, creative nonfiction, a collection of essays? How I you think, no, it's actually going to be a memoir. So if my first memoir is about my mother, who right. was my heart, this is about me and my father. Okay. Uh, who, and my father was a wonderful man, but a very complicated man, and sometimes an unkind man. And I am now understanding him much better in light of this history because what I think it was Toni Morrison who said slavery broke the world in two and when I look at our country racism slavery segregation have warped everybody and my father was like the medicine man you know how the medicine man takes on the disease for the village yes he he did not consciously know this history uh, because he shared everything that was to him unpleasant about his family. He never shared this. So he absolutely, he didn't know consciously. I think unconsciously he knew. Uh, and he was, he was tormented by it. Um, and I've discovered in the course of my research that one of his heroes, he was trying to write a history book when I was growing up and he never published it. 
And he never talked to me about it, which is interesting what the subject was. And the, the subject was a character called uh, Louis Delgrasse, who was um, a mulatto um, in Guadeloupe, who uh, was a freed slave and led a battalion. And when Napoleon was going to re-enslave everybody, he wrote this beautiful manifesto titled To the Entire Universe, The Final Cry of Innocence and Despair. And it is this an extraordinarily moving declaration of our common humanity and begging the world to see black and brown people as their brothers and sisters. Right. And then knowing that, that his manifesto would have no effect on the French government, he and his battalion blew themselves up. And so it gives me chills even to talk about it, to realize this was my father's hero. Mm. My father, a white, privileged, there's no reason for my father even to be, in the time that he, uh, he was born in 1929 to this very well-to-do family, to, there was no reason for him to even consider these topics. Right. So the fact that that man represented to him the highest and the best uh, and, and expressed, I think, something deep within his soul. Uh, so... I'm, I'm babbling here, but uh, I'm going to interweave the family history right. with kind of rediscovering my father. Because, you know, we grow up with our parents and we think we know them and we think we understand them. And at a certain point, we judge them. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, life teaches us they're much more complicated. Well, you're on a journey of discovery. And what is the saying, uh, you know... Uh, no discovery for the writer, no discovery for the reader. So you, as you make your discoveries, uh, I, I know how strong a writer you are. You're going to pull us into that world and we'll get to make those discoveries with you. Oh, I, I hope so. I've got it now, as we were saying earlier, sit down and do the thing. Yeah, you actually have. <laughs> I love that. People, people, no, I'm sure you ran into this. And all your years doing sitcoms, how many times did somebody come up and say, I have a great idea for a sitcom. <laughs> I just need someone to write it. And I go, no crap, really. Every dental hygienist was like, the hilarious things that happen in my office. Everyone's office is the funniest place in the or world. Or the gym where I work out. They're all so wacky. That's a sitcom. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not. not actually. It's not. Wacky is not enough. <laughs> so yes, uh, but it's important that it not be historical fiction because again, it's important that we face the truth. And yes. this is something... It, it, people have no idea what the origins of American capitalism were. And I'm not denigrating American capitalism, but it started with the slave right. trade. Um, and then when the slave trade became super illegal, then it became the textile trade, which uh, textiles were used to clothe slaves and also to uh, give uh, barter for the people who were still carrying on the slave trade uh, illegally. And a lot of insurance companies started as insurers for slave vessels. So it's it's a really interesting web. However long it takes, you're going to dive into this book. And when you're done, I want you to come back <laughs> and tell me about the, the journey of writing this book. Now, that could be a few months, or it could be several years from now. When I'm 75, 75. I'm here. <laughs> well, I'm past the second chapter. <laughs> I want to ask you something about a spirit. Uh, is there a spiritual aspect when you're creating, or and by spirit, I'm not talking about organized religion. I'm not talking mm -hmm. about dogma. 
Because when our good friend Adri was on the very first podcast, she said, when I'm writing, I have to tap into it. And it being either God, daemon, spirit, goddess, whatever you want to call it, infinite intelligence. Do you tap in or how do you, you, this book is obviously based on a lot of research, but when you start to write, what is your process? How do you tap in and how do you get started? So uh, to get started, it is basically get your derriere in the seat. <laughs> yeah, put your butt in the seat and do it. <laughs> and just do it. Right. I absolutely agree with Adri that you need the spirit. So for um, writing for television, for example, I know I'm into something when the characters start speaking through me and I literally become possessed by them. And one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. And apparently he would walk around his office talking to what himself. What sitcoms did he write? <laughs> I'm sorry. You might know one. It was Great Expectations, (laughs) also known as Great X, and (laughs) not to be confused with Great Sex. So uh, anyway, uh, so when I'm writing dialogue, it is about feeling the character and, and literally having them speak through me and hearing their voice and hearing their patter and hearing their rhythms and their particular vocabularies. And anyway, so uh, it, it's about letting those characters inhabit me. Right. For something like this, I have to say I have felt divinely led because everything from naming my daughter Bristol to the way the story found me. So this story had actually haunted me without my knowing it was my own story. On on a different world, we did an episode where uh, we dealt with the image of the mammy in black culture. And I suggested to the person writing it, Glenn Barenbaum, I said, well, what if Whitley, who's saying, oh, we need to re-embrace the image of the mammy, discovers that her black ancestors owned slaves, mm-hmm. slaves because there were African-Americans who owned slaves, not many of them, but there were. And so, and I didn't know when we did this story that that actually was my story. Right. <laughs> then I was uh, planning to do a literary response to um, the book Vanity Fair. There's a character called the woolly-haired mulatto from St. Kitts, and she is a, uh, everyone hates the word mulatto. She's a mixed-race heiress. Right. Who is family, owns plantations, and whatever. And then uh, I was, a friend of mine said, oh, you, uh, this guy's coming to speak at, uh, at Yale, and he's talking about the town of Bristol that you named your daughter after. And so I couldn't go to the lecture and I wrote this fellow saying, can I see a podcast of it? And he said, no, but here are my notes. And by the way, I did come across your family. And so that's how the discovery. So talk about feeling kismet at every step. So uh, for this, it is going to really be about surrendering to these spirits, as it were. I do feel led and I feel led also by my grandfather, who my white grandfather, who wrote a history of the family where he hinted at these truths, which right. he knew, but he he revealed and hid them at the same time. So I'm walking in his footsteps. Okay. And I hope, I think he wanted this history told eventually, and I think he wanted it redeemed. Um, and not that I'm some sort of redeemer, but I do feel like it ends with me. Mm-hmm. We have we we carry this sin 
and I'm here to expiate it. I know that sounds grandiose, but I feel that in my bones. But it's a very painful process because I am complicit. I'm not looking at my ancestors and I'm not looking at my grandfather saying, how could they? I'm thinking I'm the direct beneficiary of these crimes that derailed the fates of hundreds of people and now extrapolate that to their descendants hundreds of thousands probably uh and i'm part of it well i'm glad you're writing it (laughs) because it's going to be uh an arduous journey yeah and you're going to have to spend a lot of time sitting in that chair (laughs) wrestling the truth i want to i want to wrap this up by talking about glimpses that's the name of the podcast the name Mm -hmm. of my book and by glimpses i'm talking about finding little glimpses of god in your life Mm -hmm. and by god i'm not talking yeah you know um, I'm talking about moments of kindness, unexpected mm. compassion, tenderness. Do you see glimpses in your life? Oh, every day. And Here in New York City, knocking hey, around New York. I do believe you attract what you put out. Major and my, gift. And my mother, my mother uh, taught me that. And there's grace everywhere. Uh, and it can be something small. It can be someone bumping into you and saying, I'm sorry. But mm-hmm. I do see kindness everywhere. And uh, I, I think it's our responsibility to, to put that out, do as own to others right. as you would have them uh, do unto you. And when I look at the divine continuum of my life, and even to be sitting here with you today, what a moment of grace for me. And you were a glimpse of extraordinary kindness in a not very kind business uh, and a glimpse of humanity you always had this extraordinary humanity and heart. So I, I do think it's, it's all around us and, and we, have to, um, we have to cultivate it. We have to create it. And celebrate it. And we have to celebrate it. Right. And we have to look for it. We're always looking for the negative. <clears throat> we have to look for the positive. So I think that's the perfect way to end this podcast. <laughs> Susan, thank you so much. No, thank you. You are a delight. Thank you for who you are and what you are in the world. Uh, where you're a blessing. So, Susan, thank you. Uh, and to all of you who are listening, as you go about your day, I encourage you to take the time, look around, and catch a glimpse. <laughs>